We'll start in this brand new series that we're doing. By the way, my name is Matt Brown, and I am the lead pastor at LifeHouse. This is a new series we're jumping into today, and this is what we know, that our whole lives are basically a collection of relationships. And and that might be tough for you right now because there's some relationships that you're missing because you're not getting to see certain people. Also, there's some people you're seeing so often that might be just a hair frustrating for you also. And we understand all of that. And so I wanted to let you hear from Dustin, who a friend of mine brought Dustin in to speak to his church about Dustin's experience with his kids in this shut up in my house time together. So check out what Dustin has to say. Street's comedian Dustin Nickerson here. In addition to being a comedian, I'm also a dad. A dad who, like you, is struggling with the many challenges presented to us by coronavirus. One of the biggest challenges being my children. Being around. So much more than I'm used to. So Real Life Church, this is my gift to you. A parent's guide to coronavirus. Some tips to help you and your family stay healthy during this trying time. Tip number one, don't kiss your kids on the lips. Not now, not ever. Not only does this help prevent the spread of unnecessary germs, it also helps prevent the spread of unnecessary weirdness by you and your family in public. Another tip, you and your kids should make a list of their dirtiest friends. You know, the smelly ones, the ones that can never seem to get the dirt out from under their nails. Use this list as a reference point to know who not to spend time with right now, and also as a reference point to know which sleepovers to avoid down the road. Uh, Here's a note for the parents of daughters. Now is a good time to communicate to those daughters that every single boy on earth has coronavirus. Also, despite what PTA President Amy has to say, essential oils will not help right now. Make sure you have enough inventory of all the absolutely essential items. Bleach, hand sanitizer, soap, toilet paper, batteries for their devices. All the crucial things that we must have, because if we run out of these, we have no hope. Make sure your kids are eating all their vitamins. Maybe even as a meal replacement. Are we gonna run out of food? Seriously, like is that a thing that's gonna happen? This also might be a good time to introduce your children to intermittent fasting. Now you've heard this one. It's very important that you don't touch your face. Also important that your children don't touch their own face. And perhaps most important during this strenuous time of everyone living together that you don't slap their face. Now some of the symptoms are fever, cough, shortness of breath, If you have these, you may have coronavirus. You may also not have coronavirus. You may just have fever, cough, and shortness of breath because your kids are around so much more. It's a great time to catch up on some movies with the kids, but be selective in what you watch. I would avoid things like WALL-E that depict the end of the world. Also, avoid anything with Tom Hanks in it because that is just too much for any of us to bear right now. Real Life Church Ministries, in conclusion, enjoy this extra time with your kids, and may God have mercy on your soul. Yeah, what do you say to that? I love that idea of leveraging this time to teach your daughters that every boy has the coronavirus for the rest of their lives. So that's a lot of fun. Hey, we do know that there's a lot of relational stuff going on right now, and we know that every relationship has a climate to it. In fact, we would say this, that 
the climate dictates the forecast in just about everything. Um, I know this because we were planning in the beginning of March to go and visit my son Jake and his new wife Hannah in Phoenix, Phoenix, Ohio, Phoenix, Arizona. Now we are so excited to see them because we haven't seen them in a little while. They've moved far away, but we're also excited because in Phoenix in March 1st, it's like 80 degrees and we had an Airbnb with a swimming pool. Now I want to see my son and my daughter-in-law but an Airbnb with a swimming pool in Phoenix, Arizona in March. Are you kidding me? And then we had to cancel those plans. And so somebody said, hey, when are you going to go back? And I said, maybe October. Maybe we're going to go visit in November. And they said, why don't you go in July? Do you know why I'm not going to go to Phoenix in July? Because it's hot. It's Africa hot. It's like Sahara Desert hot. If I go to Phoenix in July, I will walk out and just self-combust on the spot or, as I saw in the movie the other night in The Wizard of Oz, where the Wicked Witch melts into just a puddle of nothing, that would be me. Because in July, in Arizona, it's 115 degrees. And the reason we know it's going to be that is because there's a climate in Phoenix. And the climate dictates the forecast. Now, in every relationship, we know that there's a climate. And that dictates where it's going to go as far as the forecast in that relationship. So if you show me a marriage that the climate is cold and it's bitter and it's angry, I can predict that the forecast of that marriage, whether it's short-term or long-term, will probably have a lot of bitterness and anger in it. Same with parenting relationships, same with relationships with your neighbor or at work. It's just kind of across the board that every relationship has a certain climate. Now here's the challenging part, and here's why we're talking about this. You have a climate also. Which means when you walk into the room, you change the climate of the room, and then some days it might be better, and other days it might be worse. And if you're having a good day, you might improve the climate in a small direction, and if it's a really tough day, it might go negative. But every day we show up with a baseline climate. And the challenge is we do not know what climate we bring unless we take a real time and attention to it. And what this involves is this really interesting phrase and terminology that I started learning several years ago. It's the idea of emotional intelligence. And the emotional intelligence is understanding who I am when I can step outside of myself and look how I'm coming across to other people and then put myself in other people's shoes and see how they're receiving me. Now this is fascinating because this matters in a relationship with my children, my wife, my friends, my church. But other places this is showing up often these days is in the business world, in the organizational world. Because what people have realized is the more emotional intelligence you have in your business world, your office, your work world, the farther you can go quicker in your life. And places like Harvard and Stanford and Yale have done a lot of studies around emotional intelligence. And this is what they've discovered. You may be in a workspace where you're the smartest person in the room. You may be able to do better accounting, better engineering, be able to forecast the financial future of your office or our country. But if you can't get along with the people in your office, you're going to cap your own forward mobility. That you may be able to predict things that no one else can predict, but if you can't relate that to people and get along with people and help people move with you, whether you're the boss, the manager, or the employee, you will limit how far you can go. And that's not just true in the office world. If you're working with heavy machinery and you can't work well with other people in your world, they're going to put you at the back of wherever you're working by yourself and limit you. If you're a farmer, 
You may be able to tell the crops that are coming better than anyone else in your world, but if you can't connect with your son that works with you or your father or your wife or the guys that come to help in harvest season and planting season, you're going to limit how far and how fast you can go. And the challenge of this is it's hard to see this in ourselves. Now, I know that some of you are dreading waking up tomorrow morning and going to work because you're going to work with somebody that you go, they just don't get it. They just don't see it. Everybody else in the room sees it, and they just don't see it. And some of you are glad you don't have to go to work tomorrow because you don't have to work with those people. And the challenge is that person in your work environment, I mean, they say things, and it's inappropriate, or it doesn't connect, and everybody else rolls their eyes at the same time or talks about it after the meeting's over. The scary thing is they don't see it themselves. But do you know what might even be scarier than that? is that person might be you, and that person might be me. And I realize someday I I show up and I lead my team, and I I realize I'm acting like Michael Scott with almost no self-awareness, and I just don't want to go in those directions. And here's what you know, and here's what I know, that relationships are your greatest asset, and they're my greatest asset. And if you're a Christian, we know that, because when Jesus showed up on the planet, he said, hey, the two most important things are to love God relationally, and love people around you relationally. And those are our marching orders as Christians. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you know, you talk to someone that's 80, 90 years old, and they're at the tail end of their life, and they'll say consistently, hey, that the relationships in my life or lack of relationships are more important than anything else that I had. And that's why coming you know, out of our Easter series and coming out of Easter, I want to talk about relationships a little bit. In fact, when people said, Matt, what are we talking about next? I couldn't think of anything better than relationships because we're under a place and in a place where relationships can be a little stressful because we're all shutting our homes together. We're all learning a new normal. And if relationships are our greatest asset, how do we figure that out? And what if we really could change the climate of our relationships? You're not going to change the fact that it's going to be hot in Phoenix, Arizona in July, but what if you could change the relationships in your own home? in your own place of work, in you know, the church that you attend when we all come back together. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to hopefully help give you some helpful insights from the scriptures, but at the end of this message, I'm going to ask you a question that's going to be super challenging. And I wanted to give you a heads up because it's going to take a lot of courage. It's going to take some um, vulnerability, and it's going to take some motivation. And the question, it's not going to cost you anything, it's not going to take a lot of time, but it will take courage and vulnerability to ask. But if you do this question that I will give you at the end, and you do a little homework, it has the potential to change the climate and the forecast of the people in your life and their relationships that matter most to you. And this is what we know. Until the climate changes, the forecast is going to remain the same. But this is the climate I think we can change. And the good news is God is at work in our lives and our relationships all the time. And he wants the best relationships for you and your life. Not just today and not just in the business world, but he has been working on this for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, when you go back thousands and thousands of years and you open up what we would call the Old Testament... If you're Jewish, you'd call it the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish covenant. You will find a story between two brothers that displays this so well. And I wanted to pull this story out and use it as an illustration of how God guides us to understand ourselves and understand other people and him the best that we can. So we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 4, and we're told that now Abel, that's one brother, 
kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. You may recognize these names, Abel and Cain, or Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. So there's one offering. And we don't do this to bring physical stuff to God to offer to him like they did, but he brought stuff from the ground, fruits and vegetables, if you will. Abel, we're told, also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So there's two brothers, two different offerings. The Lord, we're told, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, I kind of have to speak about this from a personal standpoint because Cain brought fruits and vegetables to God, and God went, oh, that's not really what I asked for. Abel brings meat, like red meat. Like, I'm convinced it must have been a ribeye with lots of marbling and fat into it, cooked to medium rare with kosher salt and cracked pepper, and it made God smile, which brings me the deduction that fruits and vegetables are okay, but meat always wins. That's just my personal opinion. You can argue about that at home. But the bottom line here is Cain didn't bring what God asked him to bring, and Abel did. And God just simply said, Cain, that's not what I asked for. And what was his response? That's what we're told. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Hey, what is the forecast of Cain right now? Cain, how are you feeling? Well, I'm angry, and I'm downcast. But the question is, do you really realize the impact of your anger and being downcast and what's going to have on your life in this moment? And this is what God says. Hey, why? Why are you angry? This is what the Lord said to Cain. Why is your face downcast? Now, this reminds me of conversations that people have with me, and I also will have with other people. When I'm having a conversation and I want to address something with someone, I'll say something like, hey, I see this thing in you. Now, I do this all the time, too, so I know I'm with you, but I see this thing in you, and I'm about to tell you about it, which is code for I'm about to hurt your feelings. And I tell them I do it, too, so we're all kind of on the same page, but I'm going to hurt your feelings. And this is what I found out in my life. If there's not somebody in my life that's willing to say, hey, Matt, this is what I see in your life, and I'm going to hurt your feelings for your benefit, then I don't have the right people in my life, and I don't have the right friends. And so I kind of invite that. But God says, hey, hey, Cain, why are you so angry? I'm going to tell you some stuff next. It's going to hurt your feelings, but it's for your benefit. And this is what we're told. But then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right... Will you not be accepted? In other words, I've asked you to do this certain thing, Cain, and if you don't do it, you're going to be in a bad place. Now, we understand that our relationship with God is just a little bit different because we're accepted through what Jesus did on the cross, but this covenant relation that they have is these are the steps you have to take in order to be in the right place with God. And Cain, you know, when you do the right things, it's what's best for you anyway. But he goes on, but if you If you do not do what is right, and I love this, sin is crouching at your door. It deserves to have you, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And I love that phrase, that sin is crouching at your door. Cain, if you keep going down this path of anger and being downcast, of insecurity, of being all shook up because you didn't get it all right, of the fact that your brother got more recognition than you, whatever it is, can whatever is stirring up in you that you're so angry and downcast, it's like sin is waiting to leap on you, and you've got to rule over it. Another translation says you've got to master it. It's as if God was giving him insight and giving us insight that this sin of hurting somebody, being angry at somebody when you don't need to be, 
because you can't see how ugly it is, it will get the best of you. And I, and I think what you know, God's trying to say in his own way is be aware of your emotions. Cain, your emotions are about to get you in a whole lot of trouble, and you've got to be aware of them. And I think this is the challenge in our world because sometimes we're not aware of what's stirring up inside of us. I realize how important it is to be aware in the season of life that we're in because I have been on camera way more than I ever have been in my life. And so before I get on camera, and I make sure there's nothing on my face, there's no lettuce in my teeth. You know, I look in the mirror and go, okay, there's nothing that's too embarrassing. I check my zipper three times just before I walk on stage because I don't want to miss something I should be aware of. It takes me back to my college years when we were hanging out late at night in our dorm and my roommate came back at 2 o'clock in the morning and he'd been having way too much fun out partying with his friends and he was annoying and obnoxious. So finally he lays down and goes into that deep, had too much fun sleep, and I called a couple guys into my room off our floor, and we took Sharpie magic markers, and we wrote things on his face because we were just a little bit frustrated. Well, my roommate woke up the next morning, and he walked right into the cafeteria, didn't look in the mirror, and, you know, of course, everybody's making fun of him and laughing at him because he's got all this marker all over his face, and then you know, he found out that I did it, so we had to kind of work that out. I shouldn't have done it, but it was really funny, so Dennis, my bad, but it was pretty funny. Yeah, the thought was, you know, you weren't aware. You weren't aware. And I think when it comes to our anger, insecurity, our jealousy, our spitefulness, we have to be aware that that's emotion in us that's very, very powerful. Because if we're not aware, it can get the best of us. Now, here's the challenge with that in the day and age we live in. I think we're more aware sometimes of all that stuff than we ever have been because we have all these personality tests, like the color test, the Enneagram, the DIS test, all those different things that tell us who we are, and they're so helpful. And I'm so glad we have them. But it's not just enough to be aware. We also don't want to become our emotions either. So now that I know that I have all these tendencies and these habits and these emotions that pop in my life, now I have to decide I don't want to become this emotion. I don't want to go down this road where it owns me. I don't want to have a relationship with my kids where I'm frustrated with my kids because of how they're acting or what they've done, but frustration just dictates my relationship with them. I don't want to have a marriage where you know, anger might creep in or sadness might creep in, or bitterness, but I don't want to let it to go to a place where we become bitterness, we become angry in our marriage, and it defines us. You've ever been to a church where that happened? I mean, church people just got angry at each other. They didn't get their way. The church wasn't doing what they wanted, and so they weren't aware that was happening, and all of a sudden it just became an angry church. And here's the interesting thing. The people in the church don't realize that's happening, but people on the outside, they hear the stories and they see the frustration and they see the anger and they just go, oh, why would I want to be a part of that? Why would I want to be a part of something that proclaims that God loves people and people are supposed to love each other, but they can't even get along inside their own church? And that's what can happen in your marriage, your relationship to your kids, your workplace. You don't want to become your emotions because it's dangerous. So God, he looks at Cain and says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. I mean, you're about ready to step over a line that you'll regret for the rest of your life. You've got to master it. And the next thing we're told is that now Cain said to his brother, let's go out to the field. And, and you almost want to jump into the story and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, Cain, what about what God just said? 
And it almost feels like Cain's like, I'm so mad and downcast and I'm not even listening. I am turning it off. I'm turning my brain off. I'm not listening to any of that. I'm just going to be mad and downcast. So, Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And it's so interesting in the way the writer writes this to us. It feels almost nonchalant. While they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and he killed him. I mean, doesn't it feel like there needs to be exclamation point, explanation point, emoji, emoji, GIF, whatever those things are, and memes that just back this up and bring some energy to it? It's almost like the writer of this said, yeah, it's predictable. Cain was angry and he was downcast. And he wasn't willing to step outside of himself, see what he was feeling, see how it was impacting everyone else. He just went with his emotions. It's predictable. It's a climate. And that climate had a predictable forecast, and he killed his brother. And he would live that with that with the rest of his life. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? Abel, I don't know, he replied. And then we're told this famous line that's been quoted over and over. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And we would realize through the New Testament, through Jesus and the New Covenant, that, that yeah, you actually are your brother's keeper. It's called loving your brother. It's called loving your neighbor. And now Cain has killed his brother. This is what I pull out of this story is, listen, I'm probably not going to kill anybody today. Although you may be locked up with your kids for so long, you're getting close, but you're not going to do that, right? But what I do realize is that emotions have the power to kill relationships. And you probably have seen this. You saw your dad get so emotionally engaged that killed a relationship with your mama. Or vice versa. You may have had a relationship with a parent that got so emotional, you just walked away and you never came back. I ran into a, uh, a woman that's a little older than me not too long ago, and she said, I, just, I haven't talked to my sister in three years. And I said, why? And it was over some silly thing. And emotions have killed that relationship. You may have quit a job because you got so emotional over something, and you didn't know why you were so emotional. You just got so emotional. You walked out, or maybe you've seen someone else do that. Emotions have the power to kill relationships. For, for some people, I think that's you know, what distance people from God. They get so emotionally upset with God that they can't see through it in the midst of it. Here's the other part of this, though. Emotions can help to heal relationships. And I thought about the emotion that swells up in this place. When we're all back together and we see our next baptism, if you've ever experienced this in our church, you know how emotional it is. And someone comes out of the water and everybody stands at their feet and they clap and they cheer and they celebrate. And there's this emotion of love in the room and I've stood next to people in our baptism tub, and you can just feel those waves of emotion. And it literally is like it heals people's souls and their hearts because God gave us that as love to share with one another. And it's a decision we have to make. Are you going to let emotions kill relationships? Or are you going to let emotions help heal relationships? And it's a choice. And it's a choice that I think we have to make. Which brings you and me back to the question I talked to you about. It brings us to the homework 
that I think we had the opportunity to do this week. But remember what I said. It's going to take some courage. It's going to take some vulnerability to ask this question and do this homework. And it's going to take some initiative. And so what I would love for you to do, and I know not everybody's going to do it, but I'm just going to believe the best about you because I believe the best about the people in our church and what God's doing in people's lives. I'd love for you to sit down with at least three people, at least one or two within your household and maybe a neighbor or someone you work with, a trusted friend. And I'd love for you to sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and look at somebody you trust and just simply ask them the question, hey, what's it like to be on the other side of me? What's it like when I walk in the room? What, what's it like when I'm around? And the reason we have to ask this question because we do not know what it's like to be on the other side of us. We just know everything from our perspective. Dr. Henry Cloud, who's brilliant in this area, he says the only way you're going to grow emotionally is to ask questions and find out what you do not know. And when you ask this question, what I don't want you to do is try and justify any of your actions. I don't want you to even apologize for your actions. I don't want you to do anything else but just listen intently and let people share. Don't say, yeah, but you did. Yeah, but you did. Don't, don't go there. Just listen. And here's what I'm going to bet's going to happen for you. If you're willing to ask this of your kids or your spouse or a neighbor or your boss or an employee, what you're going to find is you're going to get some encouragement. And it's going to surprise you. They might say some stuff that you go, oh, huh, that's good to hear. And you'll be encouraged in that way. You'll probably also get a surprise. You'll hear things you're like, oh, I didn't realize that. That kind of shocks me. That's new information. And it's going to be a surprise because you don't know what it's like to sit on the other side of you. The hard part is you're probably also going to get your feelings hurt. Now, I would not ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do. And so I decided this week um, to ask the people in my house what it's like to live on the other side of me. And my daughter looks at me, and she's a little fireball. She goes, well, Dad, how much time do I have, and how much can I write down? That's what's her question to me. And about 24 hours later, I got my first list from her, and it was a list that was... Pretty intense, encouraging, surprising, and it hurt my feelings. Then my wife, Tina, I asked her to do the same thing, and she wrote out a list of things that surprised me, hurt my feelings, encouraged me. My son, he sent me a text this morning with his list, and you know, one of the things he totally was wrong at, he said, Dad, oh, and all these things, plus you need to wear cooler clothes. That's what he said, you need to wear cooler clothes, which I don't think my clothes aren't cool. I just don't know what else to put on. Anyway, but you know what was interesting, and I, and I thought I would read the list of what they wrote to you, but I'm not going to do that. It's kind of a private thing. But one of the things everybody said is that I have to be in control. And interesting. Dad, there's all these good things about you, but you have to be in control. And it dawned on me that when I asked them, what's it like to be on the other side of me, I was giving up a little bit of control to let them have the first and last word with me. Now, men, most likely you're going to be less likely to do this. But if you would go to your wife or your kids and go, hey, what's it like to sit on the other side of me and just listen? They might pass out 
They might be so shocked and surprised that you're willing to let them just have the say. It may change the whole dynamic of your relationship. And you're going to hear some stuff that's going to hurt your feelings. But this is what you get to do with it. You get to go to your heavenly father and you're going to say, God, this is what I've been told. Now, God, you know, 85% of it's wrong. You know that. I know that. But what if 15% of it is true? Or what if 50% of it's true? My son just said this to me, or my wife just said this, or my boss said this. What if all of it's true? God, can you help me? I want to be a better dad and a better husband, and now that I've heard this, can you help me? And I think that is the best prayer you could possibly pray in the middle of this pandemic. And it's better than the prayers we usually pray. Like, God, just help us all to be healed, or all to be well, or my kids get into college, or more food. Or What if we said, God, in the middle of this time, Help me to see what it's like on the other side of me so I can love well. I believe that that is the prayer your heavenly Father will run right into the middle of and help you. And it might change the climate of the relationships that matter most. And what if on the other side of this whole pandemic thing, we came out loving better and closer to people and having better relationships? I love what John says about Jesus. We've talked a lot about John the last two months. He said regarding Jesus, the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And I love this last part, full of grace and truth. You know what the truth was in Cain's life? Cain, you're angry. Cain, you're downcast. Cain, you're about to do something that you're going to regret for the rest of your life. You know what the grace part was? Cain, I'm trying to step in as your heavenly father to prevent this from happening. I love you so much, I don't want you to carry this for the rest of your life. Even after Cain killed his brother Abel, we're told that he paid an incredible consequence, but God still watched over Cain's life. It's it's crazy. Do you know what the truth is when Jesus came to this planet with you and me? He looked at me and said, Matt, you fall short of the glory of God every hour, every minute of every day. You have so much mess and sin in your life, and God doesn't, you don't deserve to be where God is at all. That's the truth, and that's the truth today, as same as it was when I was 13, when I decided to trust Jesus with my life. That's truth. The truth is, I'm not always a good parent. I'm not always a good husband. I'm not always a good boss. I'm certainly not always a good pastor. That's the truth. The grace is, I'm going to die for you, says Jesus. You deserve punishment. I'm taking it for you. I'm going to pay for your sins. And he says the exact same thing about you. The truth is, you fall short of the glory of God. The grace is, I'll pay for it. And Jesus says that to every person on the planet. What if today you can ask this question through the filter of grace and truth? Hey, what's on the other side of me so I can understand how to love better, be a better dad, husband, mom, wife, boss, employee, friend? What do you see? How do I affect you? It could change the dynamic of everything. And in this series, we're going to dig in hard to how we change the climate of our lives. But today it starts with this one simple question. I just want to say it one more time. What's it like to be on the other side of me? And then we listen, we take notes, and we pay attention. 
Hey, in just a second, we are going to sing this song about building our life upon Jesus. And I don't think there's any better song for us to sing today because this whole idea is building our life after the life of Christ. And just if you haven't thought about this, he showed up on the planet so he could fully understand what it was like to walk in your shoes. And then instead of you going to the cross and dying for your sins, he went to the cross and took all your sin on him. That is the picture of loving well. So I'm going to pray for you. And I want to sing this amazing song together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for this ancient story of Cain and Abel that we can pull so many truths from. And God, I'm especially thankful for the story of Jesus, that he came to this planet full of grace and truth. And the two worked so well together that he never denied what is true, but he gave us all of the grace he had to offer. I pray for those of us that follow Jesus, that we could follow that pattern, that we could ask people, what's it like to be in our lives, and how can we love better, serve better, show grace and mercy better? And for the people that are out there this morning that may not know you, I pray that they could lean into your truth and your grace, Jesus, that you loved them and gave everything for the forgiveness of their sin. Thanks for your immense love in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.